The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Changing Tides in Advanced Endometrial Cancer, a visual exploration of current and emerging strategies to maximize the potential of cancer immunotherapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YBS 860. Downloadable additional resources are also available. Hello. This is Dr. Jubilee Brown from the Levine Cancer Institute at Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome to Changing Tides in Advanced Endometrial Cancer, a visual exploration of current and emerging strategies to maximize the potential of cancer immunotherapies. Thank you for joining me. Traditionally, women with advanced endometrial cancer have had limited effective treatment options. The good news is that now we have modern tools for biomarker assessment to guide personalized regimens that may be more effective than the conventional chemotherapy approaches used in the past. In a few moments, we'll take a trip together to explore the advances in the field, which have opened the door to more therapeutic opportunities for these women. Let's start by looking at the current status of endometrial cancer to understand the need for new therapies. Endometrial cancer actually is the most common gynecologic cancer and represents 3.5% of all new cancer cases in the United States and 2% of all cancer deaths. That's 67,000 new cases in 2021 and 12,000 estimated deaths in 2021. The median age of diagnosis is really relatively young at 63. So clearly this is an area where we really need new and effective therapy. When we look at endometrial cancer by the percent of cases by stage, about 67% or two thirds are localized, confined to the uterus at the time of diagnosis. About 20% have already spread to the regional lymph nodes and about 10% have metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis. That said, probably because patients present typically at an early stage in two-thirds of cases, the five-year relative survival is 81%. However, there are disparities in endometrial cancer survival. Black women with endometrial cancer have a higher mortality rate than white women, and we see this over and over again in every study. So do we know why? Well. It's probably multifactorial. Some of the reason probably lies in access to care and earlier diagnosis yielding better survival. However, it looks like there may be some molecular explanation for this, such that Black women may have different molecular profiles in their endometrial cancer than white women. And so this is definitely an area of important investigation. Let's talk for a moment about chemotherapy for recurrent metastatic or high-risk endometrial cancers. There are two chemotherapy regimens that are preferred. The first is carboplatin and paclitaxel. The second is carboplatin, paclitaxel, and trastuzumab, which is really reserved for patients with uterine serous carcinoma that is HER2 positive in advanced stage or the recurrent setting. These data are derived from GOG-209 which established paclitaxel and carboplatin as the standard of care. 
the addition of trastuzumab was based on overall survival data and really is limited to uterine papillary serous carcinomas that are PER2 positive. But you can see with a hazard ratio of 0.58, the addition of trastuzumab is absolutely essential in this cohort of patients. We see here that there has been substantial progress made in this space, but certainly still room for more. And it turns out that genetic profiling really enables personalized medicine. So the traditional histological classification of high-grade or low-grade endometrioid or serous carcinomas is shifting to a much more personalized and modern molecular profiling approach. We know that different cancers are different, they act different, they have a different natural history, and they respond differently to different types of medications. Therefore, molecular profiling allows a much more personalized treatment selection for each patient. So let's review some definitions. The modern molecular classification is derived from this TCGA, and we have actually four groups of uterine cancers that act very differently. You can see that patients who have poly ultramutated cancers do substantially better than the other groups when we look at progression-free survival. Conversely, patients who have copy number high tumors and are serous-like cancers do substantially worse than the other cohorts of tumors. This is very different than just classifying patients based on their grade or histology. Now, with this molecular classification, we can divide patients into poly ultramutated tumors, MSI hypermutated tumors, copy number low endometrioid type tumors, and copy number high serous-like type tumors. And this really revolutionizes the way that we not only categorize, but can care for patients. In fact, this information has shifted the paradigm and it changes the focus to a molecular classification. Our ultra-mutated or poly patients and hypermutated or patients who have MSI or MLH1 changes may be considered hot tumors in terms of immunology, whereas patients who have copy number low endometrioid type or copy number high serous type would be classified as cold tumors. And again, this really impacts the decisions we make in terms of therapy. These molecular classifications can now guide treatment selection in a much more personalized approach. So for those tumors that we classify as hot, we can choose immune checkpoint inhibitors. Whereas those patients who have cold tumors, we can use combinations of therapy. And for patients who have serous carcinomas, specifically copy number high tumors, we can choose targeted therapy. When we consider the use of immune checkpoint inhibitors, it's important to know how these compounds work. The bottom line is that they work by blocking T-cell inhibitory signals, and essentially this removes the break on the immune system. We can see that PD-1 and PD-L1 checkpoint inhibition finds its utility in the tumor microenvironment. Without immunotherapy, the tumor cell is not susceptible to PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibition, and therefore the tumor is able to escape as the T cell is inactivated. However, with immunotherapy, with those breaks removed by an anti-PDL1 or anti-PD1 compound, the activation of the T cell occurs and tumor cells are eliminated. 
This cancer immunotherapy landscape is rapidly expanding, and we're able to see now the benefit of immune checkpoint inhibitors across different tumor types and different treatment settings as single agents and in combination. Predictive biomarkers can guide our clinical decisions regarding the use of immunotherapy. And so we use immunohistochemistry to look at PDL1 expression, and this actually has a role in multiple tumor types. In addition, MSI, MMR, and tumor mutational burden are also FDA-approved immunotherapy biomarkers. So let's start with some important definitions. Mismatch repair, or MMR, and microsatellite instability, or MSI. How do we classify it? And what are the relevant molecular features? The MMR protein is detected by immunohistochemistry. Mismatch repair protein complexes, namely MLH1, PMS2, MSH2, and MSH6, detect and correct mistakes during DNA replication. The absence or loss of function of one of the four mismatch repair proteins results in what's called DMMR or mismatch repair deficiency. And this is the cause of MSI high or MSIH. MSI or microsatellite instability is detected by molecular testing. The consensus definition is that MSI is a condition of genetic hypermutability. And this is characterized by the clustering of mutations in microsatellites that usually consist of repeat length alterations. Now the presence of MSI represents the phenotypic evidence that DMMR is occurring or that MMR is not functioning normally. So MSI high provides the phenotypic evidence of mismatch repair deficiency. And so basically these two designations are considered the same population. Whether someone's DMMR or MSI high, we consider them able to respond to the same agents or likely to respond to the same agents. That is DMMR or MSI high refers to a group of patients with mismatch repair deficiency. Conversely, MMRP or MSS, that is mismatch repair proficient or microsatellite stable, refers to the group of patients who are mismatch repair proficient and therefore unlikely to respond to these agents. When we evaluate the incidence of microsatellite instability or deficient mismatch repair in endometrial cancers, what we see in multiple studies is that the preponderance of patients with those deficiencies have endometrial cancer. And in fact, 25 to 30% of endometrial cancers are MSI high. This represents a tremendous therapeutic opportunity for us. So how does biomarker testing and interpretation of results inform therapy selection in endometrial cancer? So let's look at a real case to explore. So this is one of my patients. She's a 59-year-old woman with postmenopausal bleeding. She underwent an endometrial biopsy that showed a grade three endometrioid adenocarcinoma. A PET-CT scan, as you see here, revealed hypermetabolic and large lymph nodes and an enlarged uterus. We performed a total laparoscopic hysterectomy, bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy, and complete resection of visible disease. So the question is, should biomarker testing be carried out? When and which tests? We know that biomarker testing can help indicate personalized treatment options. So, but there are some questions. 
What should we test for? PDL1, DMMR, MSI, tumor mutational burden? And how do we test? By immunohistochemistry, PCR, next generation sequencing? And when do we test? At diagnosis, after surgery, or after recurrence or progression? Well, when we test for mismatch repair deficiency, we can perform PCR testing in order to identify MSI high tumors. And here's an example of what you may see in a patient with normal testing versus patients with tumors that are MSI high. There are potential problems with PCR in that it takes a fair amount of DNA in order to perform the test. You need tumor and a paired normal sample and you need about 25 to 30% of tumor cells available. In addition, this PCR testing is not always locally available. Now, immunohistochemistry, on the other hand, looks different. So here we're testing for mismatched repair proteins. And here's an example of the immunohistochemistry that you see either with MSH2 or MLH1. Now, the advantage is that there's no specific DNA requirement. You only need tumor tissue or even just a small biopsy to perform this type of testing. And any tumor cell content is acceptable for an effective test. In addition, this is widely available and can be performed immediately after either biopsy or surgery. The third methodology by which mismatch repair deficiency can be evaluated is looking at the actual signature by next-gen sequencing. Here, the DNA requirements are very similar for using PCR for MSI testing. This can be either tumor only or paired tissue with either tumor and normal tissue. This provides information beyond just MMR status, but it has a much longer turnaround time, it's expensive, and it's also not always locally available. Despite the availability of this diagnostic testing, there are certain barriers that exist. Physicians and providers must be able to access the tissue send it appropriately for molecular profiling, and then be aware of the actionable biomarkers to order, to evaluate, and innovative treatments need to be adopted in a timely fashion. In addition, workflows must support being able to send tissue for molecular profiling and incorporate that information into patient care with the support of insurance and hospital infrastructure. All of these are potential barriers that must be overcome in order to successfully implement biomarker testing. Now, for hot tumors, traditionally, we've seen low responses with chemotherapy and low responses with targeted agents. Improved responses, however, have come with checkpoint inhibitors, especially in tumors that are MSI high or DMMR. So let's look more closely at some of the evidence supporting the use of PD-1 inhibitors in endometrial cancer. There are currently two PD-1 inhibitors approved as monotherapy for use in advanced endometrial cancer. First, a tissue agnostic approval for pembrolizumab was granted in 2017 for the treatment of unresectable or metastatic MSI high or DMMR solid tumors that have progressed following prior treatment and who have no satisfactory alternative treatment options. More recently, dostarlamab was approved in April of 2021 for the treatment of DMMR recurrent or advanced endometrial cancer following progression or prior treatment with a platinum-containing regimen. This was followed soon after by a tissue agnostic approval in August of 2021 for DMMR recurrent or advanced solid tumors that have progressed on or following prior treatment and who have no satisfactory alternative treatment options. 
When we look at the keynote studies on pembrolizumab, the anti-PD-1 inhibitor, the response rate was really outstanding. So keynote 028 showed a response rate of 13% in 24 patients with PDL1 positive tumors. Importantly, keynote 158 showed an overall response rate of 48% on 79 tumors that were MSI high. The FDA approved pembrolizumab in May of 2017 for solid tumors that are MSI high. So interesting because this was a tissue agnostic designation. Now, the phase one Garnet trial evaluated distarlamab monotherapy in multiple tumor types. Part one involved dose finding. Part 2A was a fixed dose safety run-in. Part 2B looked at expansion cohorts and specifically cohort A1 included patients with endometrial cancer who were DMMR or MSI high. Cohort A2 included patients with endometrial cancer who were MMR proficient or MS stable. The dosing was 500 milligrams intravenously every three weeks for four cycles. And then that transitioned to 1,000 milligrams every six weeks. Primary endpoints included overall response rates and duration of response. Distarlamab demonstrated durable anti-tumor activity in patients with DMMR and MMR-proficient endometrial cancer. So interestingly, the updated data from the Garnet trial show that the response rate was 43% in patients who were DMMR and 13% in patients who were MMR-proficient endometrial cancers. Also important is that the complete response rate was 10.4% in patients with MMR-deficient endometrial cancer. When we look at the swimmer's plots, the deep and durable response with the Starlimab is really impressive. This occurred for a wide range of patients with endometrial cancer. And based on this information, the FDA approved Dostarlimab in April of 2021 for the treatment of DMMR endometrial cancer. So the activity of Dostarlimab was not just limited to patients with endometrial cancer. In fact, the Garnet trial demonstrated durable anti-tumor activity in patients with non-endometrial DMMR or MSI high, as seen here. These swimmers plots show that not only is the duration of response substantial for patients with endometrial cancer, but in fact, cohort F with the non-endometrial tumors showed substantial durability of response. The updated data from the Garnet trial show that Dostarlimab demonstrated durable anti-tumor activity in patients with DMMR in cancers beyond endometrial cancer. This further supports the tissue agnostic approval for Dostarlimab in patients with DMMR recurrent or advanced solid tumors. Additional data from the Garnet trial showed that tumor mutational burden high status was actually more frequent in the DMMR patients which is in line with the known characteristics of these biomarkers. Tumor mutational burden high status correlated with a higher overall response rate in both cohorts of patients treated with Dostarlimab, DMMR, and MMR proficient. Although this is still early data, it is intriguing and expands the impact of personalizing medicine in endometrial cancer. As we consider expanding the role of immuno-oncology, we know that combination approaches are effective across many tumor types. It will be important in the future to consider 
combining checkpoint inhibitors with chemotherapy, radiotherapy, targeted therapy, and other immunotherapy. In fact, Keynote 775 was a phase three trial that combined pebrolizumab with lenvatinib in patients with advanced metastatic or recurrent endometrial cancer that had progressed after a prior platinum regimen. Patients with MMR proficient tumors showed an improved progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.6 for lenvatinib and pembrolizumab. In addition, the overall survival also showed an improvement with a hazard ratio of 0.68. The overall response rate in these patients with MMR proficient uterine cancers was 30% for lenvatinib and pembrolizumab compared with 15% for physician's choice chemotherapy. Therefore, this combination received FDA approval for patients with endometrial cancer that is not MSI high or DMMR. As we move efforts to the front line in immunotherapy, the RUBY trial, for example, is evaluating distarlamab with conventional chemotherapy, including carboplatin and paclitaxel, followed by distarlamab and niraparib. In addition, there are multiple phase three trials that are currently ongoing. These immunotherapy combinations are being tested in advanced and recurrent endometrial cancer. The results of these trials evaluating immunotherapy combinations will really inform how we treat patients in the future, and we are very much looking forward to the outcome of these trials. So let's revisit our case now. So remember, this was our 59-year-old patient with high-grade endometrioid adenocarcinoma. Her histopathology showed loss of nuclear positivity in MLH1 and PMS2. Therefore, she is considered DMMR or mismatch repair deficient. She also had MLH1 hypermethylation present, which suggests that she does not have Lynch syndrome. And her PCR testing and next-gen sequencing revealed that she was MSI high. She underwent paclitaxel and carboplatin for six cycles and had a complete response. Unfortunately, she developed pelvic and back pain 15 months later. We obtained a CT scan and a biopsy. And as you can see, this showed a recurrence in her psoas muscle and in her pelvis. Her performance status was one and her only comorbidity was obesity. So she started on distarlamab. So what should the team discuss with this patient when she starts on a PD-1 inhibitor? Let's look a little more closely at the practical aspects of how to individualize treatment with immunotherapy in clinical practice. Here, we'll review tips on dosing and administration, mitigating and managing adverse effects, and roles of the clinical care team, because there's a lot that's new and different when we treat patients with immunotherapy agents. It's extremely important when we start patients on checkpoint inhibitors that we communicate effectively with a patient. In addition, not only should we educate our patients, but we also need to educate our family caregivers. And it's very important to share up-to-date information about immunotherapies and to some extent their mechanism of action. They also need to know possible adverse events before they initiate therapy and have a direct line throughout their entire treatment so that we can discuss possible adverse events if and when they arise. It's really important to emphasize that immunotherapy works very differently than other traditional chemotherapy that they may have received before. And in fact, they have unique responses and different adverse events may occur. Therefore, it's important to 
encourage patients to report sooner rather than later. We have to consistently assess and document every encounter with our patient, partly so that we can communicate effectively with each other. There are very specific considerations for dosing and administration of immunotherapy that differ from chemotherapy. Checkpoint inhibitors are administered intravenously. There is no oral option. The dosing schedule can be quite complex. It can differ between agents and it can differ between cycles of a specific agent. There are specific considerations for dosing and administration of immunotherapy. Checkpoint inhibitors are administered intravenously. And because the dosing schedule is pretty complex, calendars become really important in order to explain this to the patient and make sure that they do the right thing at the right time. There are multiple different dosing schedules and certain schedules may be more amenable to a patient's lifestyles or needs. For example, pembrolizumab can be dosed either on a Q3 week or on a Q6 week schedule. Dostarlamab initiates on a Q3 week schedule, but then changes after a number of cycles to a Q6 week schedule. In addition, different dosing schedules can work for a specific patient's lifestyle or needs, or even may be altered during COVID. Longer intervals may be better for certain patients for different reasons. And so the Q6 week interval may be very helpful for patients, perhaps as they travel long distances. The spectrum of immune-related adverse events is usually related to taking the breaks off of the immune system. Essentially, removing those breaks allows an intense immune response. And while that helps our body fight cancer, it can also lead to a number of adverse effects, essentially related to inflammation and an intense immune response. Any organ system can be affected. The most common adverse events that we see include dermatologic manifestations, namely rash, pruritus, blisters, ulcers, and vitiligo. GI disturbances can happen, diarrhea, enterocolitis, transaminitis, hepatitis, and pancreatitis. The endocrine system can be affected, causing thyroiditis, hypophysitis, diabetes, and adrenal insufficiency. And the lungs can be affected, causing pneumonitis. It's very important to catch these as they come up prior to becoming very difficult to manage so that the patient can return to normal quickly. Grade one toxicity involves minimal or no symptoms and typically is seen with diagnostic changes only. In general, with grade one toxicity, checkpoint inhibitor therapy should be continued with very close monitoring, except for certain neurologic, hematologic, and cardiac toxicities. Grade two toxicities generally indicate mild to moderate symptoms. With grade two toxicities, we typically hold checkpoint inhibitor therapy and consider resuming immunotherapy when symptoms and or laboratory values revert to less than or equal to grade one toxicity. Also, very importantly, corticosteroids may be administered and typically the initial dose of 0.5 to 1 mg per kg per day of prednisone or the equivalent may be administered. Grade 3, 4 toxicity indicates severe or life-threatening symptoms. Grade 3 toxicities absolutely mandate holding checkpoint inhibitor therapy. High-dose corticosteroids should be initiated. And here we're talking about a dose of prednisone of 1 to 2 mg per kg per day or methylprednisolone IV 1 to 2 mg per kg per day. 
If there's no improvement within 48 to 72 hours of high-dose corticosteroids, infliximab can be offered for some toxicities. Corticosteroids at this dose need to be tapered over about four to six weeks. And when symptoms and or laboratory values go back to grade one or less, you can consider rechallenging with immunotherapy. But this has to be done very carefully, especially those who have early onset adverse effects. Grade four toxicities should result in permanent discontinuation of checkpoint inhibitor therapy. The bottom line is that these toxicities can be really significant and you very much want to catch them before they turn into grade three, four toxicities because you want to manage them before they cause harm to the patient. There are significant safety take-home points for the care team when using immunotherapy, and everyone on the care team needs to understand the differences that are unique to immunotherapy treatment. Patients need to be monitored very closely for potential immune-related adverse events by evaluating blood work, including liver enzymes, creatinine, and thyroid function. It's different than many chemotherapy agents. We have to ask patients about symptoms like cough or shortness of breath, because this could be a sign of pneumonitis. And every single time we have to ask patients about diarrhea because this can be a sign of colitis. It is, however, important to note that most immune-related adverse events occur in less than 5% of patients. And the more common AEs are fatigue, nausea, and anemia. You know, these can be mitigated and treated if the patient and the care team stay in communication. Again, early reporting is key to managing these. It's really important that oncology nurses care for patients by providing the appropriate support for patients receiving immunotherapy. This involves triage, answering questions and asking the right questions and being able to help educate and catch immune-related AEs with early reporting and early intervention before anything harms the patient. There can be some important items that we carry in our toolbox and these can include a grading of side effects handout so that patients can carry this potentially in their wallet or their purse and be alert and aware of side effects that can happen. We can treat with anti-diarrhea medications and probiotics and anti-nausea medications and not only just give permission to call, but really encourage our patients to stay in very, very close contact with us. We have to tell our patients about available resources, including clinical trials and support groups, and our nursing partners can really be essential in delivering this care. We're almost finished with our journey, but before we conclude, let's put everything together and synthesize how a comprehensive assessment can help oncology teams collaborate when managing patients with advanced endometrial cancer. Patients with endometrial cancer have limited treatment options, and so this still represents a high unmet need, but certain things have changed. The treatment of patients with advanced and recurrent endometrial cancer has rapidly evolved. It's not the same as it was one year ago, five years ago, or 10 years ago. Biomarker testing is imperative for your patients. We see over and over that molecular classification better reflects tumor behavior, and predicts therapeutic response. It tells us how we need to treat our patients. Checkpoint inhibitor monotherapy is very promising, especially as we see with the Starlimab and Pembrolizumab with their approvals for second-line therapy in DMMR tumors. In addition, combination therapy with PD-1 inhibitors may be successful in some patients. 
Investigations are underway for moving immunotherapy to the frontline setting, not just in the recurrent setting. So we'll all be looking for this information to come out. Importantly, racial disparities do persist, and there is a substantial need to be better understood at multiple levels, from delivering care to the molecular differences in tumor types. It's also increasingly important that all the members of the oncology care team work together to support patients through the possible side effects that they may encounter with immunotherapy. That concludes our exploration of immunotherapy opportunities and advanced endometrial cancer. I'd like to remind you to download the practice aids associated with this educational activity as a resource for you, your staff, and your patients. I hope you found this activity informative and valuable to your practice. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YBS 860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. This activity is accredited by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education.